morning, everybody. Like Sister Everett said, my name is Gino Allison. I'm one of the pastors here, and I want to welcome you all to the South Suburban Vineyard Church. Special welcome to those of you who might be visiting with us for the very first time. Excuse me. That's just a reminder for you to turn off your phones. I timed that perfectly. Uh, where was that? Offering. Uh, we didn't take it off. Did we take an offering? We did. All right. If you're watching us online, it's also glad to have you with us as well. And uh, uh, before I get to the message this morning, I do want to. I do have a few brief announcements. If you've been walking in each and every week, you know that our uh, even more than we can imagine building uh, campaign, building pro- project. Excuse me, is moving along very, very well. I'm told by our uh, general contractor that, that despite delays, we are about 93% complete with our project. And five months into our two-year campaign, we have raised to date $47,581. And that's just five months in. And so um, many of those gifts have come from people who haven't even made pledges. And so we're getting these gifts from people who have made Uh, pledges for our two-year campaign, but we're also getting these gifts from people both in and outside of our church who believe in what we're doing and who want to continue to sell toward what God is doing. And so you may or may not know this, but the new sort of family gender neutral bathroom complete with a changing station, that bathroom is open out in the front lobby, so you can start to use that bathroom. And in the next week or so, the vanities and the cabinets for the bathroom and the lobby will be put in. And then the last piece after that, after they fix some things that wasn't quite right with the flooring, uh, we, we, we get our new furniture in a few weeks as well. And so, and let's just, yeah, give it up. Um, in just a matter of, I won't say a few short weeks because I've been wrong before, <laughs> in a matter of weeks we'll be able to use that space and, um, and, and continue with our pledge. And so I just want to say thank you because something this big doesn't happen without the faithful service and generosity of our people here. And I also, you probably also noticed and heard that we did what we call a switcheroo. The children's classrooms have moved to that wing of the building and the student ministry uh, rooms have moved to this side of the building. And so I just want to give our student ministry uh, uh, and kids ministry staff a hand as well as lots of volunteers. as well as Brother Chris MacArthur, who is in here, who's done a whole bunch of painting over the last couple of weeks. And so none of this stuff happens without you, and I wanted to pause and just say thank you. I also want to introduce some of our newest SSV members. It's a really big deal uh, to, to welcome new members, and so I want to read these names of the new members. And I want to start a tradition, if I can. Uh, after I read these names, I want us to just get in the habit of giving a just crazy ovation to these people because this is a really big deal. Our family is growing. And so after I read these names, can we just give them a slightly inappropriate uh, (laughs) welcome to the SSV family? So we have Brother Tyreek. I don't know if Tyreek is here, but we have Sister Kim Perryman. Kim, are you here today? This way, Kim is right here. I guess we're going to do it that way. Marilyn, I see you here. Go away with us. There we go. And we have uh, Mike and John G. Tellison. I don't know if they're here today. Mike. They're here. So these are our newest SHV members. If you see them in the hallway, just welcome them to the family. 
and our SSV family is continuing to grow, so we thank God for that. Let me get into the word this morning. I was in um, uh, the car with my son, Josh. Josh is 10 years old, and uh, this, when they have me alone in the car, this is their favorite time to like pepper me with all sorts of questions. And some of you know that this is a reality. I've got no place to run, I've got no place to go, and they know that I like to listen to music and podcasts in my, in my car, but still they love to pepper me with questions, and sometimes I turn the music off and I engage in the conversation. And my son Josh asked me one time, he said that if you could ask God any question, what would it be? Now normally the questions aren't this interesting, but this question was interesting and I said, ooh, Josh, that's a good question. Man, I gotta think about that. So I thought about it for a moment and what ensued was a very interesting conversation and I told Josh that he had given me an idea for one of our sermon series this year because I know that not, not only Josh, not only me, but we all have these questions that we would ask God. And he asked me to make sure that I gave him credit publicly <laughs> for this idea. And in, in an effort to keep my word, Josh gave this idea. So if this ser sermon series is fantastic, you can credit him. If it bombs, you can credit him as well, right? But I think, I think, I think that he's onto something because we all have our questions for God, don't we? And because of that, I wanna begin this brand new series that I'm simply calling Questions for God. This series is helpful and dare I say necessary because one of the great frustrations of the Christian life is that there is so much concerning faith and the spiritual life that isn't entirely clear. Maybe you've got it figured out, Maybe you're wiser and smarter than me, and maybe you're walking closely, uh, more closely with the Lord than I am, but I found that it's frustrating that I tend to have more questions than answers when it comes to the spiritual life and a life with Jesus, and that's the preacher saying that, right? I, I'm almost uncomfortable with how much mystery is involved with the Christian faith. So many questions about faith we don't have answers to or places where the answers are there, they are just not obvious and they're not hanging out on the surface. And you know now that this is important because we spent many weeks talking about wisdom over the course of the last series and how important it is that we pursue it. But what do we know about the questions that we have for God? Is it even okay to ask God questions? If you're like me, you grew up being directly and indirectly told not to question God. To just take everything that was told to you at face value and that it's somehow unspiritual, somehow lacking in faith and faithfulness to question God. But what if I told you this morning that God is not bothered by your questions? What if I told you that God is big enough secure enough, smart enough to handle our questions? What if I told you that God welcomes our questions? The scripture extends numerous invitations to bring our queries, questions, and concerns to God. First Peter chapter 5, give or cast all your cares or worries on God. Why? Because he cares for us. 
James chapter 1 verse 5, if you need wisdom, if you're lacking in understanding, our generous God will give it to you. He will not rebuke you for asking. That's right there in the scripture. And so it seems that the scripture is encouraging us to pursue wisdom, knowledge, pursue the answers that we need for our questions, knowing that God is okay with it. And I'm glad he's okay with it because we live now in a time where we've got more questions than answers. On every meaningful front of life, whether it be politics and which one of these cats we should vote for, Lord, help me, I need some wisdom. We're raising children. We're dealing with all kinds of social issues. I need some answers to these questions. People are opting out of faith, pulling away from faith, exploring their options after years walking with Jesus. I'm so glad that I can bring my questions to God. And as I tried to figure out which of the questions we would start this series out with, I, I, I thought I'd pull one straight from the pages of Scripture. And we're starting this morning with a simple question, God, are you the one or should we look for somebody else? Are you the one or should we look for somebody else? And that is ripped from the pages of Scripture. Somebody asked Jesus that very question and my intention at the start of this series is to explore that question and to unpack what the scriptures might have for us this morning. If you can meet me in your Bibles in Matthew chapter 11, I would really appreciate it. Uh, if you'd like to follow along this morning in a paper Bible, there are Bibles on the edges of your row. You can also follow along on your tablets or your phone. Matthew chapter 11, I'm starting at verse 1. While you find it, let me pray. Heavenly Father, we thank you. We thank you that you are God who is not bothered or intimidated by our questions. That you encourage honesty and integrity, which means if we don't understand, you just allow us to ask. And so, Lord, I know that in a room this size, whether in person or those listening later or live on Facebook, that there is somebody wrestling with this question or something like it. And Lord, we know you're gentle in your answer. And you may not give us the answer we want, but you will give us this morning the answers that we need. And we ask that your power and presence be in this place today. Lord, would you put power on these words you've given me to speak? Would you move the preacher out of the way so that your truth, your light might shine through? We ask all these things in Jesus' precious name. And all God's people said, amen. amen. Matthew chapter 11, I'm starting at verse 1. When Jesus had finished giving these instructions to his 12 disciples, he went out to teach and preach in towns throughout the region. John the Baptist, who was in prison, that's important, heard all the things the Messiah was doing. So he sent his disciples to ask Jesus, are you the Messiah we've been expecting or should we keep looking for someone else? Are you the Messiah we've been expecting or should we keep looking for someone else. Jesus told them, go back to John and tell him what you have heard and seen. The blind see, the lame walk, those with leprosy are cured, the deaf hear, the dead are raised to life, and the good news is being preached to the poor. And he added, 
God blesses those who do not fall away because of me. And this is the word of the Lord. So we engage this morning in what for some of you is a, is a familiar passage of scripture. And you might be asking as we just sort of pop into this episode of scripture and this life with Jesus, you might be asking who is John the Baptist? And I tend to offer a correction whenever I'm talking about John the Baptist because it might be confusing. Some of you might be thinking that John is Baptist denominationally, but it just simply means that John is a baptizer. He was baptizing folks. In fact, he was charged and challenged to go ahead of the Lord and to prepare the way. And so John would go before the Lord and preach and teach and spread the message of the kingdom of God, which was simply repent, turn from your sins, and believe. And what we should know from the outset, we're not going to get a complete history of John, but we should know that John is no slouch. He's a really important figure in our faith, and this is what Jesus had to say about John just a few verses down in verse 10. Jesus says, John is the man to whom the scriptures refer when they say, look, I'm sending my messenger ahead of you, and he will prepare your, your way before you. I tell you the truth, of all who ever lived, none is greater than John the Baptist. This is what Jesus has to say about John. All to say that John is the man, not according to me, but he's the man according to Jesus. He's one of the heroes of our faith, and I'm so glad that this account is in Scripture. You follow my teaching over the years, you know whenever a, a hero of our faith is having one of these human moments, I like to draw it out because it makes me feel better about my human moments. Whenever one of the heroes, the superheroes of our faith is struggling with their faith, they've got some concerning questions for God. I want to tease it out because it's scripture giving us permission to be, well, less super sometimes. That we don't have to pretend that we have it together when we don't have it together. Now, there's going to be some days where you're full of faith, exuberant with joy in your salvation, and there will be some days where you'll be dragging the floor, questioning everything, wondering what's going on, and I want you to know that I know that that's okay. I'm glad this is in here. And John has a question for Jesus. John, who was in prison, verse 2, heard about the things the Messiah was doing, so he sent his disciples to ask, are you the Messiah we've been expecting, or should we keep looking for somebody else? Now, I don't mean to instigate this thing, but that sounds kind of disrespectful to me. If I were to press in deeper, I would say it, it, it sounds a little irreverent, that John would be asking that question at this moment of the Messiah. But it's, it's, it's okay because it's honest and because it's real. Now this is an interesting couple of verses. There's so much information in here. The most important is that John had heard, according to verse two, he heard about all the things that the Messiah was doing. 
Now, we, can't, we shouldn't imagine John being holed up in prison. Nobody's coming to visit him. No news from the outside world is getting in. The scriptures tell us that this information about all that Jesus is doing, the miracles, the crowds, the teachings, the people pressing toward Jesus, right? Folding into the kingdom. Like, John is getting all this information, and still he sends word to Jesus, are you the guy that part shouldn't be ignored. It shouldn't be ignored because we can reasonably conclude that John's personal situation, his personal circumstances was having an impact on how he personally was viewing and experiencing Jesus. John, as we learned in verse two, is imprisoned by Herod, who by all accounts of history was a scoundrel of a king, and John was ministering and preaching and prophesying, and he spoke truth to Herod and basically told Herod that he was out of order for marrying his brother's wife while his brother was still alive. And Herod didn't like that, and he had John imprisoned, thrown into prison, and John will eventually be put to death by beheading. So John is practically sitting on death row. And despite what he hears and knows about all that Jesus is doing, John seems to be influenced more by what's not happening in his own personal life. I say that again. Despite what he hears and therefore knows about the kingdom advancing, all of the signs, wonders, and miracles, and all the people having their eyes opened, Hearts stirred by the ministry of Jesus, he seems more influenced by what's not happening in his life. He's still in jail. He's still in the slammer. He's still in the stony lonesome. And he can't figure it out. And the same is true with some of us in our own personal life. If we were just to pause and say, we see the kingdom activity happening around us. We hear the accounts of barren wounds being opening. Sickness being healed, jobs that have been prayed for, uh, being unlocked, all sorts of kingdom activity, and, and we can't get to a place of faith and faithfulness based on that because we're preoccupied by what's not happening or what is happening in our own life. Has anybody ever been there? Is anybody there now? Or your situation and your circumstances are saying more to you about who God is than everything else you know and have witnessed is anybody in John's shoes right now. And we know that his disciples came to visit him in that lonesome prison, but we also know that doubt came to visit our dear brother as well. His questions for Jesus are dripping with it. Some of us recognize it, right? Before we get to Jesus' answer, I want to spend a few moments talking about the D word, doubt. Doubt, a feeling of uncertainty or a lack of conviction. And this seems like a dangerous, concerning word when it comes to Christian faith, and it is. And we're situated presently in a moment where loads of people are self-reporting, experiencing doubt, and they might be using words like deconstruction of their Christian faith. 
And if you're a pastor or a parent, or you know somebody who's in the throes of deconstruction, whether it's a kid or a teenager or an adult, whether it's somebody who's new to faith or somebody who's been walking with the Lord for many, many years, there is great concern in the Christian world uh, concerning doubt and deconstruction. I would almost say there seems to be a bit of panic happening amongst the believing world, especially if you're a parent and your kid was just towing the Christian line and all of a sudden they have questions and all of a sudden they get to a place where they're being influenced by more than just your voice and more than just your church and more than just your preacher and some of you are thrown into a panic because you're watching your children, your friends or your parents experience doubt. You're panicking, right? Well, don't. Because when we hear deconstruction, we imagine everything precious about our faith being blown to smithereens. But I don't think we should view it that way. And so to illustrate this, I think we should think of something really, really precious to us. I don't know, maybe like our phone. This is why I had this with me. Something precious, right? Like our phone. And so when we think of deconstruction, we think about something precious just being exploded to smithereens. But I think more reasonable people hear deconstruction and think of like an exploded diagram. And do we have that picture? An exploded diagram of like, like a cell phone or something like this, right? We don't have that picture? Is that in there? Well, what I should have put in there was a picture of this phone. Just If you've ever seen an exploded diagram, it's not like everything's blown to bits. It's just all the components are just sort of stacked on top of each other. You see where all the screws go or you see where the motherboard goes. And if you've ever had to have your phone serviced, like you've gone in and you've watched them deconstruct your phone like right in front of you. You ever seen this? Phone won't turn on or some water or something got in there or the thing needs to be cleaned. I watched them take apart my phone in real time and I don't think to myself, well, what are they doing to my phone? I watched them take apart this phone, and as they take apart the pieces, gently might I add, they're able to detect what's missing, or what's wrong, or what needs to be replaced. Oh, look, you've got a bunch of pocket lint in here that's not supposed to be in here. That's why your phone isn't charging. And so I've come to see that gentle, thoughtful, helpful deconstruction process as a necessary, helpful thing to fix that which, that which is wrong. And I felt like I grew up in a family of uh, faith reality that didn't encourage us to ask the hard questions. It didn't encourage us to wrestle with our doubts or concerns. And I feel like it's most often the case that we get our faith handed to us by somebody. I don't think that's necessarily bad because we all come to faith somehow. Some youth group person, some parent, some teacher, some counselor, some coach. And typically we get handed the faith of that person. And how many of you know that a lot of times what gets handed to us, though they've been well-meaning, though they're well-intentioned, just something's not quite right with it. And after you've had it for a while, it starts to break down or it starts to malfunction or something that you were sure of about faith, you're not so sure of anymore. 
Some conviction that you held on to, you go through a pocket of a rough patch in life and it just, the, the math doesn't math quite right. And you enter a phase of deconstruction, of doubt, and it's not a bad thing. Now, for those of us who grew up in the age of God said it, I believe it, that settles it, which sounded really good and really faithful at the time, but it coached us to be pretenders, to pretend to understand things that we didn't understand, to pretend to be okay when we weren't okay, to pretend to be standing on the promises of God when we weren't standing on anything, much less the firm foundation that Jordan talked to us about last week. And we came to be little pretenders. And as pretenders, that works when it's sunny outside, but pretending does not stand up in the day of high winds. Your faith doesn't survive COVID if you're pretending. If you haven't been given and granted permission to ask the hard questions, the, what we've been handed to us is often flawed. Now, Jesus wasn't flawed, but something about the way our faith was packaged or played it when it was handed to us wasn't quite right and if you're like me, right around 18, 19 years old, right around the time I went to college, I started asking God some questions. And there comes a time in every believer's life when we have questions. Enter doubt and deconstruction. And the question is, can your faith hold up under questioning? Can your faith sustain reasonable doubt? Because doubt in itself isn't a terrible thing. There are worse things than doubt in the Christian's life. Cynicism, been there, done that. I know everything there is to know. Indifference is worse. I don't care. But can I tell you, young people, can I tell you, not so young people, that doubt is a sign of life. It's a sign of life. It's a sign that you care. Because when you're indifferent, you moved on. When you're indifferent, you don't care. But John is not indifferent. He's shaken. He's confused. Maybe a little hurt, maybe a little salty that Jesus hadn't come and busted him out just yet. But he's asking. And that asking is a sign of life. He's curious, and that curiosity, friends, is a sign of life. And if you can manage to leverage doubt in a constructive way, you say, how do I leverage doubt in a constructive way? If you can aim your doubt in the right direction and bring your questions to the right person, I think you might see your way clear. And that's what I learned, uh, among other things, from John's story. He doesn't just fester. He doesn't talk among himself and among his guys and grumble and complain about his circumstance. He aims his doubt where? Toward Jesus. 
he aims his doubt toward Jesus and sends Jesus a message. And I think this should help us as we wrestle with our own doubts. I think it should also help us as we learn to be more sensitive and more caring and more Christ-like with the doubts of those around us, especially those who are in the throes of something really difficult, those who are in the throes of something challenging and hard, those imprisoned in something that maybe we can't map our mind around where the easy answers and the trite, you know, Christianese doesn't help. Doubt is okay. John has a question. Are you the one or should we look for somebody else? And Jesus is faithful as we walk through this to answer John's question. Jesus answers John's question. This is what I love about Jesus. He's so good at this. He's so good at this. And we can learn from him. We should learn from him if we're going to bear his name and represent him in a world that has questions. We can learn because he's so good at this. He doesn't belittle him. He doesn't get snarky with him. He answers the man. Now, he answers him sort of in a roundabout way, as we'll see, because Jesus loves to do that. But we'll look at Jesus' answer in verse 4. Jesus told them, go back to John and tell him what you've heard and seen. Go back to John and tell him what you've heard and seen. The blind see, the lame walk, those with leprosy are cured, the deaf hear, the dead are raised to life, and the good news is being preached to the poor. Now, as a preacher and as a person who loved the scriptures, I love the poetry of this answer. I love how Jesus this answer is. But don't, don't you hate it really? Don't you hate it when somebody answers you in this really non-direct way? You know anybody that doesn't answer you directly? Do you live with anybody, brothers, that doesn't give you a straight answer? Don't look straight at me because she's looking at you right now. I personally don't like indirect, poetic answers, especially when I'm in distress. But Jesus is God and we aren't. And the answer that he sends to John is loaded with meaning, and John's got nothing but time. <laughs> and so he's got to sit with it. Jesus says, go back and tell John what you've heard and seen. Now, we heard in verse 2 already that John has already heard what's going on, but Jesus says, tell him again what's happening. And tell him what you've seen since you've been out here. Tell him the fresh stuff that's happened. Nothing different, nothing new. Blind eyes are being opened. Folks who couldn't walk are starting to walk. Those with sores all over their body are cured. Folks who couldn't hear can hear. Dead people aren't so dead anymore. And the good news, the good news, the good news, the gospel is being preached to those who are poor in spirit. The kingdom is breaking in everywhere that Jesus goes, and he wants John's guys to deliver that message, perhaps again, to him 
where he sits. Now what's interesting about this text is that John, if anybody knows the Old Testament scriptures, John does. And what John would know and recognize immediately from Jesus' answer is that Jesus is giving him a, a, a paraphrase from Isaiah chapter 61. This is the same Isaiah 61 scroll that Jesus would have read when he walked into the synagogue in Luke chapter 4, verse 18 and 19, where he unrolled the scroll that was handed to him and conveniently read from the place where it reads, The Spirit of the Lord is upon me, for he has anointed me to bring the good news to the poor. He has sent me to proclaim that captives will be released and that the blind will see, that the oppressed will be set free, and that the time of the Lord's favor has come. And after he read from that scroll, verse 20 tells us in Luke chapter uh, 4 that he rolled up the scroll, handed it back to the attendant. All eyes in the synagogues looked at him intently. Then he began to speak to them. The scripture you've just seen has been fulfilled this very day. And you've heard me say this many times, that Jesus was essentially said that prophetic prediction about what Messiah would do when he comes is being fulfilled in your very ears. I'm the guy in this text. The spirit of the Lord is upon me to preach the good news to the poor, give sight to the blind, proclaim that captives were released and that the oppressed will be set free. Now, like John would automatically recognize this when the disciples brought back this report. But here's a very interesting thing. This is where Jesus gets really weird with this. Conspicuously absent from Jesus' answer to John is any mention of captives or prisoners being set free. (laughs) Now, if you're in prison... And you've gotten a message back from Jesus. And the disciples are unfolding each line of this. And you're waiting for the captives being released part. And it never comes. The message from Jesus that you would get is loud and clear. And it would be at least twofold. Yes, I am the guy. Because I'm doing what I said I would do. But Jesus also read between the lines of John's question because John's question probably was asking, are you coming to get your boy out of the slammer? As a sign that you are who you said you would be. And maybe John's faith as it is deconstructing, he's questioning that aspect of his faith or its understanding of his Christian faith that Jesus would come and get him out of tight spots. Knows that Jesus can raise the dead. Jesus can send his word. He sent his word to places and people were healed. He didn't even show up. John knows it can happen. And maybe his paradigm for who Jesus would be and how Jesus would show up, and particularly how Jesus would show up for his guys, would be that, Lord, get me out of here so I can come, so we can come turn up together. So we can extend the kingdom together. And Jesus makes no mention of any captives being released. And I I have to think that that's intentional. I have to think that John would immediately recognize that Jesus is saying, yes, I'm the guy. I'm the guy. And you know that. But I'm not coming to get you. And I wish they gave us more details 
about how this landed on John because I know how it would land on me. We'd see some books later, Paul and Silas having a similar predicament where they're truth-telling and courageous sharing of the gospel has them thrown in prison, but the Lord breaks them out. But John can't get out. He can't get a break. And yet, Jesus is who he said he is. And so, what I draw from this is that Jesus is the man and that we should trust him. Um, and here's the less awesome part. But, but the results may vary. The results may vary. And some of us are in the throes of a situation right now that you've seen God break through in the way that you want him to break through for you. You've seen it happen before. You might be sitting on the road with somebody who you've seen God do just what you're asking him to do, and he's not doing it for you, and it's perplexing. It's frustrating. It's the cause of doubt and despair, and you might be tempted to walk away, but the Lord says, I'm the guy, trust me, but the results may vary. Come on, if you're like me, like, I, I'm a visual person, I gotta see it. My wife takes me to a restaurant, I don't like to go to new restaurants, I know what I know, I like what I like, but if she drags me to a new restaurant, I take a long time to get to my seat because I'm looking at the dishes on the table. You ever do this? You probably look strange because you're like, oh, that looks good. We went to this Mexican spot the other day, and before the, got to the table, they tried to hand us the menu. I don't need the menus. I will have, I'll have what he's having. Yeah, bring me that. Isn't that how faith works sometimes? Lord, I want, I want one. Bring me what they're having. Do for me what you did for them. Straighten my marriage out like you straighten their marriage out. I want kids that sit down quiet like that. I want a house like that. I want wholeness in my body like, you understand what I'm saying? God, give me that. And if God can't bring you that, or he doesn't bring you that, or he's not in his sovereign plan to bring you that, you got, you're upset, you're confused. But the Lord would say to you today, go ahead and take the thing apart. Go ahead and deconstruct it because somehow somebody handed you a paradigm of thinking about me that doesn't square with what I actually told you. That is that in this life there will be trouble and pain, but take heart because I've overcome the world. Like, when did I ever promise you? Calm seas. Jesus says, even myself, I came not to be served, but to serve. Even, even the Messiah came to die. And so in our deconstruction, we have to take the thing apart and say, oh, see here? Okay, this, this is the problem. Because they used to say in the old church, every day with Jesus is sweeter than the day before. Get that out of here. That's, that's what's causing the thing to break. All the folks said, I came to Jesus, I looked at my hands, and they looked new. I looked at my feet, and they did too. Lie. <laughs> you got them same calluses and bunions. They meant well. Especially if you were raised by some folk who've been through history of some struggle and pain. 
on. They meant well, but it wasn't true. But you only work that out when you aim your doubt at the right place. And you bring your concerns about your infertility to the one who can help and make sense of it. When you bring that child who just won't act right, when you bring your circumstance, you done made it to retirement age and you ain't got enough to stretch, You say, Lord, I thought I served you my whole life. Are you the one or should I look for somebody else? And the Lord would say, I, I ain't the one, but I'm sovereign. I'm good. I'm enough. Let's sit down and talk about it. I love how he concludes his cryptic answer to John in verse 6. He added... God blesses those who do not fall away because of me. And this is his way of saying to John, John, hang on. Not hang on because I'm coming to get you, because I'm not. But hang on to your faith. Hang on to your belief in me. God blesses those, or blessed are those who do not fall away because of me. Another translation says, blessed are those who are not offended because of me. Now what that tells me is that I'm gonna be offended when I engage Jesus. There's plenty of things about Jesus and the way he rolls that are simply offensive to modern day Westerners like us. And Jesus says, blessed are those who are not offended because of me. Why? Because he knows there's deep offense in his message and how he approaches us. It's like when somebody comes up to you and they start to send us with no offense, but you know you're about to be offended. They're about to hit you with something, right? (laughs) In the same way, Jesus says, blessed are those who do not fall away because of how narrow this path is of how hard it is to hang on when you've got more month than money. When your love life and your future isn't unfolding like you thought it could or should. When you thought the years that you have deposited into church, into Christian faith, would pay out more on the other side of this thing and it's not working right. The Lord says, blessed are those who don't fall away because of me. Blessed are those who don't walk away when you don't get the answer from me that you, you'd hoped for. I wonder if there's anybody there right now that feels like you're on the edge, you're on the brink of falling away. And you didn't know before today that you could ask such an audacious question out loud, but the question of your heart is, Lord, are you the one or should I keep my options open? Did I keep my heart pure for no reason as I behold the wicked prospering despite their wickedness? Like, are you the one or is there something else? 
Worship team, you can make your way up. I don't want you to raise your hand, but who's here today? Who's wrestling with doubt? Who's facing some measure of deconstruction? I think the Lord would encourage asking questions. I think the Lord would encourage you looking under the hood of your faith and maybe doing that in concert with others, maybe who aren't in the throes of what you're dealing with, to search the scriptures, to see if there's any faulty things that are infecting how you come to see God. If there are any expectations that you might have that might corrupt walking with Jesus, any promises that you're holding on to that the Lord simply didn't make, like turn it over in your heart, turn it over in your mind. Are you wrestling with doubt? Bring it to Jesus. Aim it at him. Now some of you are listening to me today and you're dealing with children who have come to a certain age where they're starting to question your faith and you feel panicked, you feel distressed, you feel like they're slipping away. Can I tell you that Jesus loves your kids more than you do? Can I tell you that if you subscribe to a Jesus that can't handle your children's doubts, do you subscribe to the wrong one? And the Lord in his gentleness, in the same gentleness that he answered John, can answer you and your child or your spouse or your coworker or your parents. Because God is dependable. Are you the one? Should we look for somebody else? Jesus says yes. Should you look for somebody else? No. But you can bring your doubts to me. You can bring your questions to me. And over the course of the next few weeks, up, up until Easter, we'll be introducing a new question. Some of them ripped from the pages of Scripture. Others will be ripped from the pages of our hearts. But we'll wrestle over the next few weeks with these questions from God. Can you stand with me as we... If you can, I'm sorry. God, would you give us, would you release the gift of faith in this place? God, only you know what we've come in with today. Whether it's doubt, deconstruction, or worse, cynicism, or worse, indifference. Only you know what we've carried in today. And only you have the answer to everything that we seek. And as we sing this final song, Lord, I just pray that the words of these songs, if they're not true already of our hearts, that you would move us to a place where we would depend on you, where we would trust you, where we would seek you for answers and trust you despite what we can see. Come, Holy Spirit, do your work within us. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen.